Tonight on Battleground, Israel at war. You're watching live pictures from the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, a city that's been destroyed at least twice, besieged 23 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, and attacked 52 times in its 6,000 year history. And it's the capital of a free democratic nation currently at war. The veteran TV commentator Ehud Yari will be joining me later from Jerusalem, which is at the front line of the battle between civilization and tribalism. It's a, it's a real war, not the one that we were preparing for. Well, I've got to ask you this, and, and it, it, look, it would, be, it would be improper to try and lay blame or, or, or play a blame game at this stage in proceedings. But we have you to acknowledge... Hear you hear, Nick? This is the siren. You get alert on your phone. Yeah. And that's yes. telling you to yes. take cover, is it? Uh, yes, this is not in my area, but it tells you exactly which area. I'll also be joined by Jonathan Spire from Jerusalem to talk about Hamas and its backer, Iran, and ask what's the worst that can happen, the worst for which Israel must now prepare. Last weekend's massacre of thousands of Jewish Israelis, including the beheading of babies, uh, relegates almost everything else we've been talking about on this programme way down the agenda. But we'll be continuing our fight here at home to stop the drive for renewable energy investment and we'll continue to stand up for rural and regional Australian communities under threat from destructive wind and solar developments. Tonight I was planning to bring you a report from Port Stephens in New South Wales, the town at the centre of a growing campaign to stop whale-killing offshore wind turbines polluting our waters. I'll bring you that report next week instead. Battleground streams at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time every Thursday, on demand on the web at adh.tv or better still via the ADH app which you can download free on your smartphone, smart tablet or smart TV. Well, as I speak, the state of Israel is fighting for its very existence against a brutal enemy that wants to wipe the country from the map and destroy and annihilate its people. Israel's neighbours Hamas in the south, Hezbollah to the north and the rogue state of Iran are seeking, aren't seeking a peaceful compromise. They're not as they claim to be resisting an invader, they're bent on the total destruction of Israel. This week, we got a chilling glimpse of what that looks like after the incursion of wave after wave of Hamas terrorists into southern Israel. As many as 40 babies and young children were horrifically slaughtered in the Kafa Azar kibbutz, many of them beheaded. The terrorists deliberately targeted the most vulnerable, pregnant women, the elderly and children. Reporter Mail Benolil from the TV channel I24 reported what she saw in Kafar Avur. She said, we're talking about burned houses with entire families killed inside. Women and children whose heads have been cut off. It's the apocalypse. What happened there is only a small part of the brutality that occurred across southern Israel. Hundreds dead, scores of women raped, hostages, including children taken into Gaza to be held as human shields. Rebecca Weiser, writing in The Spectator this week, described it for what it was, a modern-day pogrom. A pogrom was the name given to organised massacres of Jews in the 19th century in Russia. Rebecca cites a description from The New York Times in 1903. Quote, the mob was led by priests 
and the general cry, kill the Jews, was taking up all over the city. The Jews were taken wholly unaware and were slaughtered like sheep. The dead number 120 and the injured about 500. The scenes of horror attending this massacre are beyond description. Babies were literally torn to pieces by the frenzied, bloodthirsty mob. The local police made no attempt to check the reign of terror. At sunset, the streets were piled with corpses and wounded. Those who could make their escape fled in terror, and the city is now practically deserted of Jews. Rebecca writes, this week's attacks in the Israeli villages and kibbutzim of the Negev desert was a 21st century pogrom. Rebecca Weiser, I should say, is my wife. No one can plead ignorance of what happened. The atrocities were filmed on mobile phones, shared on social media and broadcast around the world, which makes it all the more strange that the demonstrations in Sydney in support of the terrorists were allowed to occur, let alone that people were prepared to protest in favour of Hamas. Anyone could see that these monsters were no heroes, no freedom fighters resisting an occupation, no champions of rights and liberty. They were monsters stirred by blood, bloodlust, devoid of any emotion that we might remotely describe as human, slaughterers of the innocent, and most staggering of all, so proud of what they'd done that they posted the gruesome evidence for everybody could see on social media. Every Australian, indeed every civilised human being, should deplore the actions of Abbas and stand in solidarity with Israel and the Jews. Yet some apparently don't, which shows the powerful resistance of ideology to facts. There are none so blind as those who will not see. This may not have been the war Israel was expecting, but the smarter analysts in the Middle East have been warning for some years about the grave threats posed by Iran through their Palestinian proxies. This week's attacks happened on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, a conflict that began when Israel come, came under attack from a coalition of Arab states led by e Egypt and Syria. Jonathan Spire is a Middle East, British born Middle East analyst who's now an Israeli citizen. Last month, in a piece anticipating the anniversary of Yom Kippur, he wrote that the project to trap and suffocate Israel did not end with Israel's victory 50 years ago. He wrote, just like a spider's web, this is intended to render the target helpless, unable to move, stripped of its strength, before the final injection of poison finishes the job. Jonathan called it slow, infinitely patient erosion, and then at the appropriate moment, sudden violence. It is serious, it is proceeding, and its goals and the depth and breadth of both its ambitions and its methods of organisation require more serious attention. Jonathan Spire joins me now from Jerusalem. Um, your piece was somewhat prescient, of course, I, I, although you probably wished it hadn't have been. Mm. Yeah, well, that's right, Nick. I mean, first of all, uh, I should be clear, since not making false claims, I certainly know more than anybody else uh, anticipated the timing of this, uh, nor, uh, frankly, necessarily the direction of it. In other words, many of us were looking to the stronger proxies of Iran as the likely uh, or more likely precipitators uh, of uh, or, or perpetrators rather of uh, an attack of this uh, magnitude, that's to say specifically the Hezbollah organization uh, to the north. But yeah, I mean, broadly speaking, I have for, I guess, 
about the last decade and a half, I and 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 some others here in Israel have been trying hard to look very closely at the Iranian method of use uh, of establishment or establishment of contact with and then building up of proxy political slash military organizations as really a key tool of Iranian national uh, regional strategy in which the surrounding and then destruction of Israel is a central and indeed stated goal. And in some ways, I think we've even or I've even been quite critical of some of the kind of mainstream policy making here in Israel. Um, because of its focus on other aspects of that uh, uh, project, no less important, but to the detriment of of some important details. I say Israel, to put it bluntly, has tended to focus more or less exclusively on the Iranian nuclear program, which of course is is absolutely cardinal in its danger and in its importance. But what it's meant is, to some degree, I think the. Uh, the uh, professional echelon in this regard has taken its eye off the ball with regard to looking closely enough at the actual stuff on the ground that Iran is already doing, which is in terms of this strategy, peerless, by the way, in its sophistication and uh, effect. Iran's a third world country. There's lots of stuff that it's not good at at all. But one thing which it does extremely well is this, this, this use and mobilization of proxy political and military organizations. And we have just experienced an episode uh, in that uh, ongoing and unfinished uh, project of the Iranians in Gaza from October 7th. Well, it always pays to listen to aggressors, to listen to what they actually say, right? And Iran has been yeah. saying uh, that that it wants to right wipe Israel off the map, that it wants to destroy its people. Uh, and that we now know, I think we should have known before, but from the events of last weekend, seeing the terrible uh, slaughter that occurred there, in southern Israel, we now know what that means in practice. It means the, the elimination of men, women and children in, in what is essentially a pogrom, right? Well, absolutely. This was, uh, you know, what the, the events that took place in the border communities were unmistakably, it had an unmistakable historic echo for uh, Jewish people. And, you know, this was a, 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 a remarkable wake-up call in the sense that, and, you know, a, a, a very notable thing in the sense that people here in Israel tend to think uh, of the state of Israel with its security institutions as being precisely those bodies that make such pictures uh, not uh, feasible, not uh, not possible. And so, you know, it was a, a real uh, a real, you know, uh, event in that sense of, of the term people to thinking a little bit about the deeper and older uh, patterns of Jewish history and the extent to which maybe they're still with us. And if we want to have that security structure guarding against them, boy, we have to absolutely be awake, you know, uh, all the day to be making sure it's still functioning, it's still running, and most importantly, maybe pr most primarily that the uh, the eyes that watch what's going on on the other side to know what's coming need to be absolutely vigilant and never uh, never rest a moment. And yes, that comes back to what you were saying at the beginning of what you just said, which is that primary in that is understanding the nature and therefore the intentions of adver of adversaries. Now, there's been a lot of criticism, you know, over the last decades here of the people who came up with the Oslo agreements with regard to the Palestinians. 
specifically that they misunderstood the nature and intentions of the PLO and Arafat at that time. I'm afraid that we may have witnessed, and not from the left end of the map, but from the supposedly right end of the map here in Israel, a sort of repeat of that in miniature by people who would regard themselves as cold-eyed realists, but who nevertheless de facto in recent years have related to the Hamas organization in Gaza as an organization that was biddable. That's to say, no, they never thought, nobody ever said we can reach peace with Hamas. Nobody thought that. But what they did think was that Hamas was corruptible, that it had become corrupted by the exercise of power, which it has been exercising as the exclusive authority in Gaza since 2007, and that therefore it could be related to through in a kind of system of uh, carrots and sticks. You uh, hit Hamas hard from the air, usually when it fired rockets and missiles at Israel from Gaza. But on the other hand, if it behaved itself, then you allowed the Qataris to bring in, you know, then Israel allowed the Qataris to bring in, you know, casefuls of cash, casefuls of cash dollars each month to Hamas, permitted a certain number of Gazans, up to 20,000, to work in Israel, and so on and so forth. So carrots and sticks. And as it turns out, we should have been listening more carefully to what the leadership of Hamas were saying, because they were saying in public throughout that they hadn't changed and that their intentions, and I'm more or less now quoting directly Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar from a year ago, their intention was to, to tear out the hearts of the Jews and eat them. You, know, there's a, you can look up the quote. So, you know, this is the kind of thing Sinwar's been saying. We weren't listening. For the same reasons as maybe in Oslo, in the sense that we thought we knew better than him what he actually thought. That's to say we were mm. too clever to just, to just listen to what he said and say, hey, he probably means that we should get ready. Instead, we were saying, yes, you have to understand, he's saying that because X, but actually his interest dictates that Y. Yeah, no, it didn't. Wisdom mm. begins with listening carefully to what somebody's saying and taking them very seriously in their intentions, and especially if what they're saying is that they mean you grievous harm. If they're telling you that, they're kind of doing you a favour. So you should uh, return the courtesy by listening uh, very carefully, I think. And I think we weren't doing that, many of us, in recent years. Yeah, because when I was last in Israel, I think six years ago, there was a very strong narrative. I mean, it's obvious, it's been obvious for decades probably, that, that Israel is not going to find a partner for peace in the Palestinians and certainly not in Hamas or Hezbollah. Uh, but... We put forward the reason we, we, we thought it was because Hamas had a, a corrupt, comfortable elite leadership that was growing rich and comfortable on, on foreign money, providing it kept yeah. its state in, in, a state of, in, a, in a state of unrest, that it didn't want to settle this dispute and it was a tragedy for the Palestinians because they would never get peace because these people just wanted to keep... This. But you're right, it, it, it's a lot more than that. This, this is not just a kleptocracy. This is, these are people yeah. driven by a vicious ideology based on thousands of years of historical grievance. Yes, that's right. And, you know, this was visible, this was being said, this was being written. Uh, we weren't taking it sufficiently seriously. And I think that goes for, for all of us, and I don't exclude myself from this, as I said at the beginning, in the sense that even those of us who who do take that very seriously and who've made that who've made understanding that and organizing against it uh the center of much of our work now going back many years uh didn't necessarily think of hamas specifically as among the most potent representatives of this as many people thought well yeah absolutely right that is the, that is the situation but hamas specifically is not the most serious threat and i think 
Hamas and indeed its allies understood that. And that's precisely why they chose to focus on that less guarded front. So they were very smart in that respect. And I don't know the extent to which an active campaign of disinformation and of deception may have been going on, but it may well turn out that it has been. As Over the last two years, the Hamas leadership has made many indications suggesting that it had indeed that it did indeed fit that script. You know, it was negotiating about a return of the Qatari money and about work permits right up to about a week before this uh, this uh, attack took place. That's to say, when it was an absolutely an advanced stage of planning. So, you know, Hamas did has clearly carried out uh, a campaign of uh, deception, whether whether that was planned at a strategic level or whether it was just kind of doing that with one hand at the same time planning with the other. Yeah, it's seriously pulling the wool over the eyes of the Israeli security establishment. To be sure. Um, and again, even those who do very much see things in the way that you just described them, of whom I describe myself as one, you know, wouldn't necessarily have put Hamas as the number one threat. So, yeah, we did take our eyes off the ball in that regard to some degree. And, um, you know, many of us have been surprised. You know, we, are, we are in admiration of the Israelis' ability to be prickly enough to keep their country safe, to protect their borders, mm. to build what was, I think, a very sophisticated uh, security fence and, and associated uh, uh, border protection around the Gaza Strip. But something went badly wrong last week. Oh, yeah. Well, there's no doubt that uh, this was a failure of the system on a number of levels. I mean, we've been talking until now about the the strategic intelligence level. That's to say, understanding the enemy's, uh, understanding and interpreting correctly the enemy's uh, intentions. And that's correct. I think, that, like you said at the beginning, I, you know, I count myself among the people who generally got that right. There were others who got it got it wrong, but I don't in any way claim prescience in that regard. That didn't mean that I knew what was going to start happening at 6.30 in the morning on Saturday, October the 7th. And the, and the, the systems that are meant to allow you to know that aren't, of course, on the level of strategic intelligence. They're on the level of operational intelligence and tactical intelligence. That's to say the actual physical mechanisms that are there in place that are meant to show you that bulldozers are moving towards the border fence or that paragliders are you know, flying overhead on their way to slaughter young people uh, at a concert. Now, these systems uh, failed also uh, because Hamas uh, managed quite smartly, actually, in terms of the tactical uh, events on the day to knock out uh, specific parts of those systems in such a way that the surveillance uh, mechanisms along the border that are supposed to be able to show the IDF exactly what's happening all the way along that borderline were out of action, which meant for the first hour or two of the events, uh, Israeli planners simply weren't able to see exactly what was happening everywhere. And they had to improvise. They had to use, you know, knowledge on the ground or whatever to say, okay, well, this village is suffering such and such, and, and we should go there and send forces here and send forces there. So this, uh, you know, this was a, a fault on the day as well. Uh, it also appears to be the case, although we don't know yet, information is only just starting to seep out, that some kind of indications that something was going to happen were transferred to the government of Israel by uh, Egypt, by Egyptian intelligence, up to, we're hearing now, three days in advance, and that this information was not correctly understood and then not acted upon. So, you know, there's been failures here on the tactical level, on the operational understanding level, and on the strategic level that we discussed at the beginning. Yeah, this was a major failure. And undoubtedly, when the fighting is done 
uh, in Gaza. There will be a very, very major reckoning here in Israel on every level. Yeah, but it's too early for that because now we're faced with this. You, you, the country is at war, number one. Uh, this is not a joke. The country is at war. Uh, and, mm. and, and in that situation, you have to look at what is the worst that could happen. Well, let me uh, give you a suggestion and then you can amplify it. You, you've got a, a, a hellishly, a diabolically difficult problem down there with Gaza. Uh, you've got uh, clearly a Hamas that is much more sophisticated than many people thought. You've got the problem of going in and uh, into, into Gaza on the ground, which is always hazardous, house to house, building to building fighting. Mm. Added to that, the complication of the hostages, the human shields. But that is in a way just, it's the smallest of what could happen when, if Hezbollah was to get involved from, from the southern borders of Lebanon with its very sophisticated equipment and, and its long experience yeah. of fighting that kind of war. And then, you know, Syria, of course, is, is wide open for, for the Iranians to just come walk straight through to the Golan Heights. It's a very, very difficult, challenging situation. Things could, we need to be prepared for the fact that things could get a whole lot worse. Sure, absolutely. We've been talking for a while, and I've been writing you know, for a while about the uh, plans on the other side for what they've been calling now for more than a year, uh, the unification of the arenas or the unification of the fronts. This has been a slogan they've been using pretty much since the events of mid of May uh, 2021. Uh, and they, and you know, this is a very concrete meaning. And what it means is that they under, is that they are linked, you know, on every level. These organisations, uh, they are linked back to the mothership. The mothership being the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And yeah, Iran has an array of uh, available uh, assets going, as you said, from Gaza Strip, but of course to the north, from Lebanon uh, to Syria to Iraq, all the way back to Iran itself, and then, of course, to Yemen as well. You know, there are assets seeded all the way uh, across the region. We've been watching the seeding of those assets for many years now. Yeah, sure, it's not clear yet if that multi-front unification of the fronts war uh, is about to start or if we will be limited now to an operation in Gaza. There's no way of predicting that with exact uh, accuracy. But sure, that's going to be a very major challenge if it comes along. If that happens, then that becomes the, of another. The events become of another dimension. Then this war, which it's not at the moment, uh, Israel is still a lot stronger than Hamas in Gaza and can do needs to define needs to define what it wants to do, which I hope we'll discuss in a moment. But once it's decided, it has the physical capacity of doing it. If this turns into the multi-front war, then that then turns into potentially you know a, a challenge to Israel on the level of 1973 or even. Uh, earlier events. My own belief is that Israel uh, is an immensely uh, vigorous and reactive country and society. We have many uh, examples in the past, where and October 1973 being maybe one of the most uh, notable ones, where Israel was taken by surprise, was, re was caught reeling in the in initial moments, rapidly gathered its strength, and then achieved its goals vis-a-vis -vis the enemy. So there's plenty of precedent for this. I don't believe that the current Israeli society is any weaker uh, or lacking in vigor than it was uh, decades ago. But sure, if it turns onto that level, it turns into a massive uh, strategic challenge, which will need uh, all Israel's strength uh, to face. So let's address the, the Gaza question. What, what do you see as Israel's options? 
Well, I personally do believe that if Israel intends to carry out a large-scale ground maneuver into Gaza, and I suspect and this is what is being discussed, and uh, Israel has mobilized 360,000 reserve uh, soldiers. Usually you don't re recruit, to, uh, mobilize such a huge number of people if you don't intend to, to use them, and the only way to really use those people would be in a ground maneuver. If Israel does intend to carry out a ground maneuver of that scale into Gaza, that's going to cost uh, a lot of lives. It's uh, uh, an operation of great magnitude, both on our side and on the other side. I've, my own view is that it should only be carried out if there's a clear strategic goal. And in my view, what the goal should be, should be to destroy the uh, Hamas uh, political entity in Gaza. I say when this ends, there should no longer be a Hamas government in Gaza, because what the events of October the 7th prove is that the notion the Israeli establishment has had for the last decade and a half, which we discussed at the beginning, that you can actually kind of turn this Islamist enclave into an asset for Israel, that if there's no partner for peace with the Palestinians, then it doesn't do any harm actually to have them divided into two authorities, with one of the authorities being an obvious bogeyman, an obvious jihadi Islamist bogeyman. That whole thinking failed and ended on October 7th. So given that we now understand that to be the case, the strategic goal should be then to, to take a different course, to end that entity so that when the fighting ends, there will no longer be a jihadi entity in Gaza and we'll then have to think about solutions. Anything less than that, in my view, uh, and it would, it would be better not to carry out a large-scale ground manoeuvre. Because yeah. if we carry out a large-scale ground manoeuvre without that clear goal, we run the risk of killing, you know, of, of getting a lot of our guys killed, of killing a lot of people on the other side, including, unfortunately, civilians on the other side, because that's just not avoidable in these conditions. And then at the end of it, not having actually changed a great deal. We'll leave in the end. Gaza will be a smoking ruin. If Sinwar's still alive, or then somebody else will get up again in Gaza City and plant the, Gaza, the, the Hamas flag on the rubble, and nothing much will have changed. Something does need to change, so we need to have a clear goal or not embark on the... Uh, the venture in the first place. Jonathan, thank you very much for your insights. Uh, we won't keep you any longer, but I, I, no doubt, sadly, we'll be on this story for a long time and look forward to having the chance of talking to you down the track. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Happy to talk to you. For some insights as to the challenges Israel faces and to gauge where the conflict might go from here, I was joined last night by Ehud, Ehud Yari, a Middle East commentator for Israel's Channel 2. Ehud Yari is a Laffer International Fellow of the Washington Institute and a frequent visitor to Australia, where I've been privileged to meet him on a number of occasions. Ehud spoke to me via video link from Jerusalem. Ehud Yari joins me from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining me at such short notice on Battleground, Ehud. First of all, perhaps you could tell me, uh, as somebody who's been in Jerusalem through these last horrific few days, how was this taken in Israel? How much of a shock was it? It was a major shock. It was uh, a massacre, a, a scene of butchery, uh, which nobody uh, could, could, could expect. That uh, if you go to some of the uh, kibbutzim along the uh, Gaza Strip uh, border, there are kibbutzim which lost dozens and dozens of people. Of course, people abducted, including children, women, foreign workers, uh, everybody. 
there was this uh, party at uh, a certain wood just two, three kilometers uh, away from Gaza where they butchered maybe 250 young uh, men and women. Um, that's not something that everybody, that anybody uh, had in mind that it could happen or would happen. I wonder if you could correct uh, the judgment of some people in Australia uh, who seem to think this was a legitimate act of resistance by Palestinians. I'm not uh, even bothering to argue with people uh, who feel like this. Uh, the attempt for the, the uh, last uh, 40 years, 50 years, was to reach an accommodation with the Palestinians. And Israel has made over the years, since the day immediately after the uh, Six-Day War in 67, Israeli, Israel has made different governments under different leadership made an, a number, maybe dozen or more different detailed proposals for a, a, a peace agreement with the Palestinians, including accepting uh, a Palestinian state, etc., etc. They were all turned down. All those people who think that this is legitimate in any way should remember that uh, uh, on one of these uh, cases, where a Prime Minister of Israel made a very generous offer to his Palestinian counterpart, President Abbas. Uh, he didn't get an answer. And then President Obama called Abbas to the White House and said to Mr. Abbas, well, what's your answer to the Israeli Prime Minister? And Mr. Abbas said to him, Mr. President, I will come back to you. I never did. Hamas, and we are dealing now with Hamas, not with the Palestinian Authority, Hamas was never interested in any negotiations with Israel. They are all about, very publicly, very openly, all about the destruction of the Jewish state. That's it. So we were trying over the past, let's say, five years, to build up a sort of a working relationship with the enemy providing a whole lot of economic benefits to the Gaza uh, Strip, allowing um, money from uh, Qatar to flow uh, to the treasury uh, of Hamas, allowing about 20,000 Gazans to cross every day and work in Israel, to get a salary, a decent salary, uh, a flow of, of goods, and uh, trucks. Uh, we were providing electricity uh, to Gaza until now. We were providing water. We were pro providing fuel under the wrong assum assumption, as it turns out, that uh, if you uh, improve the situation in the Gaza Strip, Hamas will prove uh, restrained. Total mistake. Yeah. Uh, the you, you you did this under the under the uh, expectation you were dealing with uh, the Palestinian Authority, but as as you wrote as recently as July, 
Hamas, which is essentially a, a terrorist organisation, uh, is essentially uh, taken control over the Gaza Strip and, and usurped the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, they took over the Gaza Strip in June 2007, a year and a half after Israel unilaterally withdrawn from the Gaza Strip and pulled out all the settlements that were there. But uh, if I may, uh, Nick, if I can call you Nick, the, the, it's a much wider story. What we have here is an, uh, a, preempt, a preemptive strike, ugly, cruel, bloody, by Iran, using its uh, Arab allies' proxies in order to derail the effort, which was making good progress for normalization between Israel and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which would have changed the lay of the land, the geopolitics of the Middle East. The Iranians believed, right, right or wrong, that that would constitute a threat to them, and they were out uh, to prevent it. Now, how it was done, through months and months of secret uh, negotiations and deliberations between uh, uh, the uh, uh, Revolutionary Guard uh, leaders, generals, uh, Hamas leaders, and Hezbollah in Lebanon, and what to do, and the outcome, I'm making it short, was Hamas will attack, adopting a war, a war plan that was originally Hezbollah's, but never implemented by Hezbollah, against a guarantee from Iran and Sheikh Nasrallah that if uh, the Israeli army will invade Gaza in force, in order to uproot Hamas from the area, then there will be intervention on other fronts. Hezbollah will use their arsenal of 100 plus thousand missiles. Uh, Iranian uh, sponsored militias in Syria will shoot against the, will start firing to the uh, Golan Heights, and they will try to ignite the West Bank, and probably some elements amongst uh, Israel's uh, own Arab population, which is about 20% of the general population here. So is, Israel is essentially under siege from uh, at least three sides. You, you have what we've seen in the south with Hamas uh, in, from the Gaza Strip. You have Hezbollah in southern uh, Lebanon, and you now, because of the chaos and, and lawlessness in, in Syria, it's an open door for the Iranians to uh, launch attacks or proxy attacks on Israel across the Golan Heights. Is, is that where we're at now? Yes, they are moving in Syria, for example. They are moving now. Iranian-sponsored militias, they have all sorts of them, from the east, from the... Uh, Euphrates River uh, Basin on the Iraqi border, they are moving them uh, close to the Golan. Hezbollah is on full alert and already mounted few 
small scale uh, attacks uh, at the border, pretending that it's not Hezbollah, but Islamic Jihad. We know these uh, stories. And we have uh, uh, mobilized 400,000 uh, reservists. The, we have most of the flights uh, uh, to and from Israel are canceled by uh, uh, international airlines. So it's only three Israeli airlines that are flying. And for example, yesterday I was at the airport to get uh, uh, two of my nephews coming back from vacation in Thailand, going straight to the units up north. Um, 400,000 for a small state like Israel is a lot. And you feel it. There are some shortages in the supermarkets. Uh, you have sirens going on, even here in Jerusalem. Every few hours, and you're supposed to go to the safe room, uh, etc. It's a it's a real war, not the one that we were preparing for. Well, I've got to ask you this, and and it. it... Look, it would be it would be improper to try and lay blame or, or or play a blame game at this stage in proceedings, but we have to acknowledge. Here, you hear Nick? You hear Nick? This is the siren. You get alert on your phone. Yeah, and that's telling you to yes. take cover. Isn't it? Uh, yes, this is not in my area, but it tells you exactly which area. We we. we we, we have to acknowledge, don't we, that this was a massive failure of intelligence uh, by Israel, but also by the U.S. Well, I'm, I, I would keep the U.S. out of this because uh, monitoring Hamas uh, and spying on Hamas and all this is our responsibility. And we generally uh, do a fairly good job on that. What happened now? is exactly what has happened 50 years ago in the 73 war. The information was there. I'm saying this with confidence. I know, I don't guess. The information was there. The question is how the uh, uh, head of uh, the director of military intelligence and his number two read it. And they were stuck, just like on the eve of the 73 war, to a conception, as we call it here, a conception that Hamas uh, is not interested uh, in picking another round of fighting in, uh, with Israel. Uh, and whatever they do uh, will not amount to a ma major attack. That was one problem. The peacocks, I call them, at the, the top of the pyramid of military intelligence. I'm angry on that, that, about this because I was warning uh, just 10 days before against taking the advice of these generals, not in connection to Gaza, but another uh, uh, issue. So this was one. Second was that is Israel, the Israeli army have learned to rely and its technological superiority. Yeah, but and, uh, you're, you're, now thrown, you're now thrown into a situation where having relied on your technological superiority on 
your powers of surveillance on the Iron Dome and all these marvellous things, uh, you're now thrown back into a convention, more conventional ground war, aren't you? So the question is, is the Israeli military ready for this? Oh, yeah. It's, let, let me just complete the picture so it's understood. So because of the mistake of military intelligence, and it was a Jewish festival on Saturday when it all started, along the frontier with Gaza, over 70 kilometers, they left only three companies of infantry with a handful of tanks. So when the uh, Hamas two command commando battalions and others of, of Hamas, when they crossed the fence, they broke the fence, going with motorized uh, gliders and all sorts of uh, uh, very simple equipment, there were not enough forces underline to block them. And because the kibbutzim and the Israeli uh, villages are so close to the border fence, the Hamas uh, uh, terrorists were able to enter the kibbutzim immediately and started this unbelievable massacre just going from house to house, executing people, going into that uh, party uh, in, in the wood and just shooting people around. At, at one moment, just maybe 15 minutes after they broke, they went straight to where Israeli guard soldiers sit monitoring the cameras and the sensors on the fence. And they butchered all of them. That was the scene. But it's not because the Israeli army cannot handle uh, this kind of fighting. It was because the Israeli army was not there, really. Yeah, well, it, this has woken the rest of the world up, or should have done, to the threat Israel faces. When you say that there is an existential threat to the state of Israel, we now see what that looks like. Yes, it's that, that, and, and, and they're taking pride in it. And you have in many Arab states uh, expressions, even by governments, of support in what Hamas uh, uh, was doing. For, for example, this uh, wonderful uh, princedom of Qatar all out supporting Hamas. And I have seen, and I speak Arabic, I have seen very few uh, comments in Arab media uh, sort of trying to disassociate themselves from uh, what Hamas was doing. Well, okay, well, let's project this forward. Uh, so, so what? First of all, what now for the hopes of a normalisation of relations with Saudi Arabia? Well, I think it's uh, it's delayed now. It depends on how on how we come out uh, out of this. Uh, this moment, it's not the right moment for uh, the Crown Prince MBS to make such a move when Israel is in. Uh, engaged in fight, fighting with 
fellow Arabs, whatever he feels about them. Uh, I think that the, the next move would be, but not immediately. We need to build the force, agree on the plan, and then go into Gaza. We cannot tolerate Hamas anymore. Uh, that would be a major operation. Four, five uh, divisions, plus the whole Air Force. And you have to decide how to do it. Are you going to cut the Gaza Strip into three, four uh, uh, pieces and then operate? Are you going straight into the center of Gaza City? Um, th th there are major issues, and this is why Mr. Netanyahu had to give in to public pressure, and we will have probably in a few hours uh, an uh, emergency, uh, 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 emergency cabinet with the uh, leaders of the opposition, a small, what we call, kitchen cabinet that will run the show. But the, 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 these are diabolical choices that need to be made, right? I mean, on the front page of today's Australian, there are, are numerous pictures, uh, heartbreaking pictures, of, of people who have lost their lives or children, adult, uh, women, men, or have been, taken kid, have been kidnapped. Now, a, yes. a, ro the, the, a robust military response in Gaza will inevitably lessen the chances of those hostages surviving. They are threatening to uh, execute live, on air, uh, hostages in case the Israeli Air Force continues its uh, bombings in Gaza which are targeted, but, uh, uh, and uh, that's a consider a major consideration. Uh, but so far, the Israeli Air Force is still operating fully uh, against those Hamas targets in, in Gaza. But this time, we don't employ tactics that we used before. In previous uh, rounds of fighting in Gaza, we used uh, the Israeli Air Force used first to send a very tiny missile to the uh, to a building which was targeted. We call it knock and wood to knock to let the people in the building get out, and then they will demolish the uh, building. Now we don't bother anymore. We called on the population to move out of certain neighborhoods, which we uh, uh, specified, into the center of Gaza. And uh, so the, the damage in Gaza is now very, very substantial. But the, the whole tactic of using human shields means that there are Israeli men, women, and children who could lose their lives because of this. Absolutely. I don't know how the government... I'm, I'm happy I'm not in uh, this kitchen cabinet that is being formed because they have some tough de decisions to make. On the one hand, Israel cannot 
let Hamas go now and, exchange, and uh, start negotiating exchange of prisoners. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want to uh, jeopardize the lives of the hostages, including the children, women, one demented lady. It's, they, they took everybody they could. Uh, we offered through those noble Qatari diplomats, <coughs> we offered to release um, uh, women terrorist prisoners, Palestinians, from Israeli jails in return for the release of the women and children that were uh, uh, kidnapped by Hamas. The answer from Hamas, no. They will not discuss it as long as fighting goes on. Hmm. These are very, very difficult decisions. I think we're, we've always thought of, of Bibi Netanyahu as a tough guy. But we're about to find out whether he really has the toughness that's required in a situation like this. Truthfully, he's not Bibi anymore. He has changed over last, the, last, the past two years because of his trial and other issues. And he's not the same man. And I think he realized, I, I don't speak to him for two years now, I refuse. But I think he realizes that he better have some experienced, serious guys next to him because the ministers in his current coalition are ridiculous, are ridiculous. So now in the kitchen cabinet, you will have at least two ex-chiefs of uh, staff with a lot of experience with a good, good knowledge of the Gaza Strip. And uh, he will be able to share the responsibility with people that uh, a larger section of the public respects. Ehud, I appreciate you no doubt being necessarily focused on your own uh, backyard on, on domestic issues within Israel right now. But so far as you've been able to gauge what do you think of the international response in general to this? Has it been strong enough? I think the international response in, in terms of the West, including Australia so far, I'm never sure, uh, uh, was, was uh, positive and sympathetic. And what is important also the reactions in Asia, India, Japan, etc. The Chinese, of course, is uh, half tea, half coffee, as we say. Uh, but I don't know how long this sympathy will last. You know, they had uh, over the past few days, they had the Sydney Opera, so in blue and white, they had the uh, they had the Eiffel Tower and the White House and the Brandenburg Gate, all in blue and white. But when the Israeli army will get uh, will gain the upper hand, it may change. We have seen that before. I know a bit about Australia, and uh, I know exactly who are the people in Australia who would be first. Uh, to say enough and enough, and will strive not to let Israel get rid of this major threat 
Hamas once and for all. Mm. Well, we've already seen our foreign minister, uh, Penny Wong, urge restraint. <laughs> I mean, uh, no. un under these circumstances, that strikes me as a very inappropriate response. Well, I said, I said to you, I know, I know the scene, I know the people. I didn't expect anything else. I, it was just a matter of whether she, she will say it yesterday or will say it the, the, the day after tomorrow. It's a, it's a very, it's a cop-out to say restraint. Restraint and what? And protect a terrorist, vicious, barbaric organization. Let them stay. Let them keep control over 2.5 million poor Gazans. That's the that's that's what restraint. This is what people would say to ISIS. This is what people would say to the Nazis. This is the signal. It comes back to where we began. We are, you are on a war footing. You are at war, and and, and that's a situation that, you know, any Australian, say under the age of. 50 would not have experienced in any form. That, that is a serious, serious uh, place to be. Yes, and it's uh, everybody has uh, people who know or relatives, etc., who were directly affected by this uh, assault. Uh, everybody, of course, has relatives and friends, etc. I'm not at the right age anymore, but everybody has been who, uh, people who have been mobilized to the combat units. Uh, you should see if you go on the roads in Israel now, people put out uh, uh, tables with food and, and drinks and uh, etc. for these uh, convoys of soldiers going to the front. It's, it's a country on war footing. There's no schools. There goes your alarm again. But let, let, let's, look, yes, finally, let's, let's just get this, get this straight in case yeah. anybody is in any doubt. This is not a local border skirmish between the, the Palestinian Authority in Gaza and the Israelis. There are bigger forces at work. What does Iran plan? What do you, in your mind, what do you think Iran is planning? Where, where, where do they want, they want this to go? Iran wants to, to, to obtain, to acquire predominance in the, over the Arab Middle East. Uh, their priority in recent years was the Levant, Syria, Lebanon, Palestinians, this area. They are investing huge amounts of money in transferring weapons, know-how, all sorts of uh, uh, forms of assistance to their proxies, including Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, and the rest of them. What they want now is to stop the uh, effort to, uh, to change the Middle East through a peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia sponsored by the United States because they know once there is a deal between the Israelis and the Saudis, 
an American defense arrangement with the Gulf states, the rest of the Arab world, most of it, will join the Abraham Accords and the peace agreements with Israel. That's a new lay of the land. That's a new landscape, and they are trying to avoid it. Thank you very much for your, your clarity and your, your commentary. Uh, we wish you all the very best. And uh, you. Let, let me reassure you that, that uh, the hearts of every fair-minded Australian are with Israel right now. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. You're watching live pictures from Jerusalem, from the Wailing Wall, the uh, capital of Israel, now at a state of war. It's roundabout. Just coming up, I think, to 1 p.m. Uh, Israeli time. Uh, you can see it's fairly quiet there. But uh, from the conversations we've had tonight uh, with Jonathan Spire and Ehud Yari, you can, you can see Israel is in a very, very tense position. Well, that's just about it for this week's program. Don't forget, next week, we'll bring you that report from Port Stephens, uh, where there is a massive resistance protest movement building up against offshore wind. This is very important. I think that the more pushback the government feels, the more it feels that votes are on the line over this renewable energy disaster, the more it's likely to change its mind. And Port Stephens is, of course, a Labour seat. So report on that. Interview with Barnaby Joyce, some of the locals there in Port Stephens, in next week's Battleground. But for tonight, let's uh, just remember our, our hearts and our loyalties are with the State of Israel right now. We deplore the behaviour of some people in Australia in supporting the barbarous uh, tactics of Hamas. Uh, let's hope that they can learn quickly that Israel is the only democracy in the region. It is a, it is a nation we must support and we will support. And we'd play out now with the, the Israeli national anthem. Good night.